Well, hello, and welcome to Sips and Sensibility, a podcast where three best friends from college talk about Jane Austen adaptations. This season, we're discussing Pride and Prejudice. I'm Julia. I'm Beth. And I'm Lori. Today, we're discussing the 1940 Pride and Prejudice. You can watch it on Amazon Prime or YouTube for $1.99. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Sips and Sensibility Pod and give us a like on Facebook. And remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and give us five stars. We really appreciate it. Now, before we get into this, this unique shining gem of a film. <laughs> Ladies, what you sipping? Well, I am drinking something new-ish. Uh, still in my realm of favorites, though. I'm drinking uh, a Bartles in James premium wine cooler. Ooh. This is the lemon and ginger flavor. I've got to say for our listening audience, that is a cute can. Yes, it's very cute. It's yellow and white, I guess, kind of the color of lemon and ginger. <laughs> and I must say, I feel like I need to specify the spelling. It is Bartles, B-A-R-T-L-E-S, and James, J-A-Y-M-E-S. Mm-hmm. I keep thinking it's Bartley and James. <laughs> like That's in my mind for some reason. And I've had, uh, I believe they're, they have a grapefruit flavor before. I've had that one, and it is quite delightful. But um, Ben and I actually went out on a, on a date tonight. Ooh. A little bit of shopping for Ben. And of course, he didn't buy anything. <laughs> we went to Old Navy. And he wouldn't even go in and try on the shirt. He like, it was a, a button down. So he took it off the hook and then like buttoned it up over his current shirt. And then we left. Like A true man. <laughs> there was no purchasing. <laughs> That was it. And then the other store we wanted to go into, we couldn't go in. So it wasn't the most successful trip, but we went to our favorite place for dinner after that. So I've actually already had a, I've had a great, super great alcoholic beverage this evening already. It was a vodka spritz. It was really, really good. I love a great fruity mixed drink with vodka in it. Don't we all? Especially on a Friday night, you know, it's like, let's celebrate, this week is over, like, it's just, it's a really great treat. Like, that stereotype of, I feel like it's men from the 50s who are like, could be a cold beer on a Friday night or whatever, except now it's Gen Z ladies (laughs) on a Friday night wanting a fruity drink. Give me a fruity cocktail. That's me. Every day, honestly. What are you drinking, Lori? Well... I, surprisingly, am not drinking alcohol. Uh, I am having a Puka brand tea. It is elderberry, and I cannot pronounce this next word. Uh, E-C-H-I-N-A-C-E-A. Okay. I don't know how to pronounce that. I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce that. I'm sorry. But I haven't tried it before, so we'll see. It um, had me steep it for 15 minutes. What? Yeah. 
Like that was that is such a long breathe. That was it says infuse for up to 15 minutes. So I I did as instructed. Uh, so we'll see if it's you any like good. a strong tea. That's true. I do. Uh, and it is the end of a long week. <laughs> Thank God. Um, I'm actually recording with a friend today. My pupper is currently asleep on my bed. Little Watson. Watson. He is dead asleep. I think that the listeners should know that Beth and I were both present when you first adopted Little Waddy Boy. You were. We were all in college together. You were. So if you hear tags jingling in the background, that's him rearranging himself on the bed so he can be comfy. (laughs) Normally he's downstairs, but he wanted to join me today. But Jules, what are you sipping on? Well, I am drinking wine. I have a uh, bottle of the Dreaming Trees Pinot Noir from uh, 2018. It was gifted to us because we had some friends over the other night and they brought a bottle of wine, which was very nice and adulty of them. (laughs) Wow, we're at that point Um, in life. I know. Also, one thing that Beth you were talking about uh, your fruity drink. It reminded me that whenever um, I get a Paloma, which is just a grapefruit and tequila, um, I always send a picture of it to Beth because we both really like Palomas. We had them together for the first time. And um, the reason that I started doing that was because my dad and his best friend have this thing where whenever they have she crab soup, they always send each other a picture of it. And I think it's adorable. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to do that, except it's going to be Beth and it's going to be a Paloma. (laughs) I'm glad to know this because I didn't actually know that we were doing this. I mean, there we was, are. Okay. Now you are. There was one time recently where Julia sent me a Paloma, a picture of a Paloma, and I happened to also be drinking a Paloma at the same time. So I sent her picture back. But I have had so many Palomas that Julia hasn't known about, and I feel like a huge traitor now. I know. It's okay, because I just decided the time where we both had Palomas, and I've only had one since we had them for the first time, I guess <laughs> over a year ago, so Two years ago. I didn't clue you in. <laughs> Might be. I know now. I know. Well, this is the beginning of something really beautiful. <laughs> I'm excited. I feel like this is going to drastically affect our lives from here on out. Who mm-hmm. knows where we may be drinking Palomas in the future? Maybe England going on a Jane Austen tour? Who oh, knows? yes, the future. So Julia said that it was grapefruit and tequila. I feel like I should clarify that it's not just like a grapefruit <laughs> and a shot of tequila. <laughs> There's more to it than that. All right, ladies. Well, <laughs> I feel like I've just been enlightened in such a in such a great way right here <laughs> but really now that i know about that i told my sister i forgot to tell you wow <laughs> she's not oh. even part of the equation but she knows about my dad and don so it's okay. very on brand well, shout you. out to julia's dad john and his best friend don may we <laughs> may we be them may we know them may we be them anyways so now that i know this fun tidbit I would love to know what you guys think, your first impressions of the 1940 classic film, Pride and Prejudice. Our very first Pride and Prejudice adaptation of the season. It's a a lot, my friend. I think the 
words opulent and roller coaster <laughs> describe this film? I also think yeah. the words 1940s extravaganza and product of the time also work. I don't know about you guys, but I was watching Gone with the Wind. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Gone with the Wind, very loosely impressioned by Pride and Prejudice. Yes. I would agree with that. I was tracking with it for quite some time. Mm-hmm. I, They made some choices. Mm-hmm. Um, That's one way to put it. And I was like, okay, okay, I see why you may have combined the first one third of the book into one scene. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Pretty much. But it's like f- decently accurate. And then after that, it was like, boom, boom, boom. Yeah. And... It was shocking. I mean, you get about, what, halfway through the film? And you're like, okay, okay. The plot points are at least put in such a way where you understand what's happening. And it's tracking with the book. It might, like, things might be a little off. But then about halfway through, you're just, the first loop is thrown. And then a little while later, the next loop is thrown. And then by the time you get to the end, it's just a whole, what? (laughs) moment i feel like the entire vibe of the film like everything was very fancy and just very bougie like much Mm -hmm. fancier than the bennett family has been portrayed in any adaptation i've seen we're gonna get to this but the anachronisms (laughs) about it was set in the victorian era for some reason but as beth kind of alluded to watching gone with the wind like it didn't necessarily look like victorian era england it looked like Victorian era America, so like Civil War America, which was really weird. the The music was pretty much like it did not seem no. fitting to me. It was very weird; didn't add to anything. And then again, they made a lot of choices. Like the first five minutes of the film are their guess as to what preceded the beginning of the book *Brain Prejudice*, which I felt was a choice considering how many things they left out. It also included a carriage race between the Lucases and the Bennets, which was just really something. The carriage race? It was amazing. (laughs) Mrs. Bennet screaming, overtake them, overtake them, was truly something to listen to. And like, we're talking about all this opulence and beauty and the Bennets are apparently poor, yet they look like they're rolling in cash. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's a bit of a contradiction there. This whole film is in black and white. Which is hilarious because everything is so fancy. And they talk about colors a lot, which is interesting because you you cannot see the colors. Um, But yeah, it was still, I felt like it was still enjoyable to watch, but it was a wild time. Um, this had a, like, actually a fairly decent critics rating. It has a hundred percent on rotten tomatoes that's the critic score and it has a 77 percent audience score also has a 7.4 out of 10 stars on imdb which is very surprising like i just cannot reiterate how surprising this is um and it won an oscar for best art direction so one thing that i wanted to mention this is a little spoiler alert but on imdb the critic score is only 0.4 lower than the 2005 Pride and Prejudice, which in my mind is kind of a travesty. <laughs> it's uh, 
book purists in their are just going to roll in their graves when they hear that. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention was we all kind of alluded to the fact that, you know, like colors are mentioned and it seems like the set is very fancy. So it's kind of weird that it's in black and white. And it definitely is weird because one of the trivia facts for this movie is that it was filmed around the same time as Gone with the Wind and Gone with the Wind used up literally all of the Technicolor film in the world. So there was nothing left. So this film could be uh, shot in color. So that's why there's no color. They were in fully intending for it to be a full color film. And I feel like somehow you can tell that. I think the only reason that this has the critic reviews that it does is because they're taking into account, like, if these critics reviews are from today, they're taking into account the fact that it's a 1940s film. Like, I feel like if this was shot today and the script was twisted around as much as it was the critic reviews might be different which also fun fact on the note of the script one of the reasons why I think the script deviated so much was at the time of filming this so 1940s Jane Austen's works had just become public domain so people could start transforming them and modifying them into scripts and plays and other things instead of just taking them straight from the novel. So I think this script, um, if you watch this on Amazon, it will be in the trivia. Uh, it was the first script written after Pride and Prejudice went into the public domain. So I think whoever wrote it took a few liberties. And I think that's the movie script, too, because they had also had a, a stage play. Fun fact, one of those writers who took the liberties, Algis Huxley of Brave New World fame, which is just fascinating. Also, just a fun fact, Laurence Olivier, who, spoiler alert, plays Darcy, hated the changes that they made, <laughs> which I thought was fascinating. So speaking of liberties and all of the things that this script this film changed from Jane Austen's original work. Lori, why don't you go ahead and tell us about just give us an overview of those changes that they made in this film. You got a big task ahead of you, girl. <laughs> okay, so the first thing uh that was changed is the whole freaking timeline. Take the timeline you know in this book and just throw it out the window. It doesn't exist anymore, okay people? It's gone. Within the first 10 minutes of the film, you meet Wickham, who is, like, already there in Merrington. Yes, he's at the Merrington Ball when Elizabeth first sees Darcy for the first time. What the heck? Yeah, it was very weird. So, red flag, right off. Um, besides the little, like, weird things with, at the very beginning, the Bennets are shopping in town. And they take their carriage, which normally they walk, which is, anyway. Besides the point, uh, there's just, like, weird timeline things happening off the entire time. Along the lines of Wickham, uh, Wickham and Lydia have, like, an ongoing thing the entire film. Like, the entire time. And it's a little weird, um, and it's definitely Lydia-driven. I also feel like he definitely 
informs Elizabeth about what happened between him and Darcy, but I, I don't think there's ever really any perception that Wickham and Lydia are into each other. Yeah. I think, and this is what I was seeing earlier when I said like the whole first third of the book, they consolidated into one scene mm-hmm. is because literally, it literally, they literally did that. Sorry. I say literally a lot, but I mean it here because that Meriton ball, it's everything happens in that. Like she meets Wickham, they meet Darcy, Darcy snubs her. And like, Lori, I'm sure you're going to continue to point that out. But it's just like all of these things that happen over days and weeks all happen there at the ball. Yes. So while we're at the Meriton ball, um, Apparently, Wickham just decides to tell Lizzie his whole life story right now, just completely out of the blue. Not even sure why that's decided to be inputted here. And then, and then, we have the Darcy snob. Snob. Snub. We also have the Darcy snub. So there's so many things happening at this ball. Yeah, and Darcy snubs her, and then, like, two seconds later, he asks her to dance. And also, like, Elizabeth and Wickham's whole flirtation take place during the Meriton Ball. Yeah. It's just so many... The I think... I, I feel like it was a budget thing. I'm not going to go into that right now, but it's just so interesting how much they combined into that one scene. Yeah. And then, speaking of balls, we jump to the Netherfield Ball. Which, may I say, upon first watch, doesn't really look like a ball. And it's not. It's a garden party. <laughs> because there's <laughs> archery in this, which apparently Lizzie Bennet is very good at. And her and Darcy are flirting the entire time. And she's escaping Mr. Collins, which I think we all would. And during this time at this ball, we know that Darcy and her dance. But they're having like... This whole moment where Lizzie's having a re- a revelation about his character and she's like warming up to him. And then we get the whole breakdown of here's a quick shot of her mom acting up. Here's a quick shot of Kitty and Lydia acting up with the officers and being drunk. And here's Mary and her father. And you just see Darcy kind of like fall and then walk away. And then she gets really mad. I also just wanted to say that the entire uh, Darcy and Lizzie dance that typically would happen at Netherfields is this archery scene that Laurie was talking about. And he never once in this entire movie says anything about Lizzie's fine eyes. And that made me very upset because that's a crucial piece of his attraction to her. Yeah, it was really weird. Honestly, I was getting Princess Diaries 2, Mia Thermopolis... Uh, and Chris Pine vibes from the archery scene. That was just me, I know. (laughs) Moving on to other things that aren't correct. And then all of a sudden, Lizzie is now going to Charlotte and Mr. Colin's house. And again, with the timeline thing, it's like Colin comes in. Colin comes in, he's initially like, the first thing he says is that he wants to marry one of their daughters and he wants to marry Jane. Like there's no delay. It just happens right away. But of course him and Charlotte do end up together and it's like Elizabeth, they say they're getting married and then Elizabeth goes there like the next day. It's just their, their representation of time 
is non-existent (laughs) yeah (laughs) one thing that also made me mad was they spent all of this time with the scene where charlotte unpacks lizzie's suitcases for her i'm like that doesn't happen in the book you didn't reveal anything important why are you spending time on this when you're missing so many crucial details i think they just wanted to include the part where lizzie undresses because down to her corset yeah it was she's she's still in a corset it's the 1940s (laughs) she's still clothed but it was just like why are we spending five minutes on this we could have used this five minutes someplace else come on so now we're with the collinses and we go to rosings park meet miss catherine de beg surprisingly darcy and fitzwilliam are there immediately so we come back from catherine de beg darcy proposes at least that's relatively normal uh but not really they messed up the dialogue though they messed up the dialogue so bad yeah Darcy as a character in this, we're going to have to talk about later because I got some issues. And then Lizzie goes back to Longbourn and immediately um, Lydia and Wickham have run away. And now we're packing away our things because we're moving to the beach. What? (laughs) What was with that? And Kitty and Mary are trying to figure out, well, I want to bring my bird. Well, I want to bring my music chest. So then that's happening. No one has any compassion on Mrs. Bennett's poor nerves. Mr. Collins shows up and says it's better if Lydia was dead. Uh, and then... By the way, this is where it really just goes insane. <laughs> like, if you, if you thought this was different, just wait. To buckle it, folks. So in the middle of all of this, Darcy shows up. Basically to apologize, I guess. And yeah, for like not saying that Wickham was a scoundrel. Which valid. (laughs) Nothing else. He just tells her the story. And then Elizabeth is just like, I love him. But then as he's leaving, he goes, this may be the last time we ever see each other. Like, it's so weird. Just to be clear, he hasn't actually done anything at this point. But Elizabeth is just like my love i've lost my forever love and literally nothing has changed since because uh, he snitched on her sister that's the only reason yep she wants him to spill the tea so then he leaves so they get the letter from mr gardner now saying lydia and wickham are now married and everything's fine and you know there is the normal her dad saying, I wonder how much your uncle paid, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Now. Much rejoicing. <laughs> right. And then, before they can tell anyone anything, Wickham and Lydia show up. It's just about a minute after they get the letter. And the letter says, they will be married if you give them this money. And then immediately. They show up. <laughs> they come. Time does not exist. In this Time movie. does not <laughs> exist. So these two show up. Lydia is flashing her ring. She wants to show all the servants. Mrs. Bennett has suddenly regained her composure um, in classic Miss Bennett, Mrs. Bennett style. <laughs> and then, and then, as if the last 15 minutes of this film cannot get more wild, who shows up but Miss Catherine de Beg? Dun, dun, dun. Or so we thought. So... So, she shows up, right? Demands everybody leaves. She wants to talk to Lizzie. This part at least seems normal, right? They have their talk. I have heard my nephew has proposed marriage. Blah, 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 blah. Say you will never say yes. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, right? I won't. I won't promise such a thing. Then she's like, 
you know I control his fortune, so if you marry him, I can make him penniless. And Elizabeth's like, I don't care. And in my head, I'm like, mm, girl, no, you don't. <laughs> so that part was not in the book. Yeah, so spoiler alert. Uh, now apparently Miss Catherine controls the money in her nephew's account. Anyway, that was definitely a weird added plot point. So she leaves. Um, And who is in her carriage? But Mr. Darcy. Whatever could have happened? Well, guess what, folks? He's sending his aunt as a spy. There it goes. There it goes. It was all the ploy. And apparently she likes Lizzie. Which... Yes, she talks about how she's such a good fit for you. And the whole conversation was actually just a test. It was very odd. Odd. (laughs) I I had been saying, I've been going, what? 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 Like all these different things. And then that happened. And I was screaming at my computer like, what in the world is happening? I draw the line at Lady Catherine being portrayed as a hero, (laughs) y'all. So, as if that ending couldn't get more wild, Darcy comes back in, and him and Lindsay kind of, like, have this minor reconnection, and Mrs. Bennet snubs him, not knowing that, hey, we're about to get engaged here. They go to the garden, which, they have a very opulent garden for people who are so poor, Um, and Darcy is having this conversation, you know... Uh, apparently Bingley's sister drove him to come back and you literally just see Bingley approach Jane in the distance of the garden and it's implied that he's proposing but it's never really said which again they totally missed Jane going to London what where was that it it was mentioned it was mentioned oh never showed maybe maybe it was, there was a lot of things that happened off screen in this <laughs> A <film>. lot. <laughs> Just like, hey, I heard this very important plot detail <laughs> occurred. And then let's move on. That was that was a good part of it. So basically, we have this happy ending, quote unquote, for both of our lovely couples. And then randomly, and I did not get this on the first watch through. I had to rewind this and watch it again. We get this shot of Mary playing the piano, and this guy, who at first I thought was Mr. Collins, playing the flute together, and she's singing and he's playing, and then you see Kitty in the background flirting with somebody and walking off. And then Mrs. Bennet says, not three, or not one daughter married and two almost, but to think all five could be soon. Yes, this is truly Miss Bennet's dream come true. Mary ends up with Diddy. (laughs) And Kitty ends up with Mr. Witherington, who I don't even think was a character in the original book. And it's like a minute, not even a minute at the end of the movie. And that's how it ends. And figment of Mr. Algis Tuxley's (laughs) imagination. Yes. Truly, this movie was giving me all the WTF moments for sure. There was a lot of what what in the uh, group chat happening yeah okay well we've really dived into the absolutely (laughs) wild plot of this film let's go further let's talk about the characters 
I've got some problems here. <laughs> Same. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to discussing them. Don't we all? Well, let's start with Jane Bennett, shall we? Jane was portrayed by Maureen O'Sullivan, who just has been in a litany of movies from uh, the 40s to the 60s. And honestly, you guys, I'm not going to lie to you. I haven't seen any of them except for this one. Uh, she was in the movie Tarzan's Secret Treasure as Jane Parker. Uh, she was in a bunch of Tarzan movies, actually, portraying Jane, which is kind of fun. So she played Jane. And what did you guys think of her, her portrayal of Jane Bennett? I'm sorry, who's Jane Bennett? Because I didn't see her this entire film. Oh, I'm so glad I said that. I wrote in my notes, I was like, this is not Jane not at all there was like five minutes of her in this entire film and i don't know how many lines of dialogue she actually spoke but most of it was my darling lizzie and that's about it also the original meeting of bingley and jane was weird immediately jane's like "Ooh, i think bingley's cute and then when he comes up to introduce himself to a bunch of ladies that are sitting over in the corner jane kind of like hides behind this pole and then she like comes out to greet him and it's just a very awkward and weird first interaction to me yeah I don't know that I noticed or felt like Jane didn't have enough screen time I more just felt like it wasn't a very accurate representation of her character mm. like she just came, seemed very snobby and prideful like especially the way like Julie was talking about how she was introduced to Bingley she knew that he was walking up and she purposefully turned away mm. And waited for him to like, he had to like coax her to talk to him. And he had to really per pursue her and approach her, which is not at all how our very dear Jane Bennett would behave. One other thing that was so weird was that Mrs. Bennett tells Jane uh, as she's preparing to go to Netherfields right before she gets sick, you know, make sure he sees your profile because you have the best profile in all of Meriton or whatever. And so when Jane's sitting in bed sick, Bingley's kind of standing there watching her behind this little partition as the doctor is tending to her. And she keeps like very consciously turning her head to the side so he can look at her profile. Profile, And you can tell that this is very intentional. And I just felt like that wasn't like Jane at all because it was like she was trying to, you know, catch him or something. And Jane was just so subtle in her feelings for Bingley that I felt like that was just like a real, a real disservice to where her character actually is. If that makes sense. Yeah, I completely yeah. agree. This was, this is not Jane to me. I did, however, like we're about to talk about, I did, however, feel like Elizabeth in comparison <laughs> was much closer to the book. Yes. So let's talk about Elizabeth. Elizabeth was portrayed by Greer Carson. Fun fact, Lawrence Olivier wanted Elizabeth to be portrayed by Vivian Lee, who he was having an affair with at the time and later married. Uh, but everyone said no, because they didn't want it to look like they were encouraging his <laughs> affair. So Greer Carson was chosen and said, and she, gosh, she's just been in everything. Uh, in a miniseries from the 70s, she played Catherine March in Little Women uh, she was in, she was in the love boat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was in the love boat. She was in father knows best. Um, she's been in 
pretty much all of the famous movies from the 40s and 50s and 60s. So what did you guys think of Greer Carson's portrayal of Elizabeth? I think compared to every other character we're going to talk about, she was the most book accurate. However, however, (laughs) however, she is not book accurate. (laughs) All of her, like, more, I wouldn't even say extreme qualities, but like a lot of her wit is more just like playful flirting in this. It was like really dumbed down. And I think that's because they made this film more as like a rom-com of the 40s than as a satire on society (laughs) that Jane Austen wrote it as. Yeah, I, I liked Elizabeth Fine. I mean, I felt like she was much better... Um, much more book accurate than Jane was, like I said. And I did, there were some really great moments with her. I really liked the archery scene. I thought that was kind of fun. Um, I liked some of the wit and banter that she had with Darcy and with the Bingleys. Overall, she definitely felt short, fell short for me, especially the very sudden and completely unfounded realization of love. <laughs> like to see a little more strength and character there but she wasn't too bad I think the two things that really stuck out to me were um Greer Carson was 36 when she portrayed this role and I felt like she looked so mature in the face and Jane not Jane I'm sorry Elizabeth is only supposed to be 20 so she looked significantly older than she was supposed to be to me um, the other thing was, as Beth mentioned, that scene where she realized that she's in love with Darcy definitely fell short to me. I also really did not like the Darcy proposal scene. While I felt like Greer Carson did a pretty good job um, with her acting in that scene, the dialogue, honestly, I felt like did her a huge disservice. They changed a lot of the original dialogue for no good reason. Um, and so I felt like that scene was just not at all what I was hoping for. Um, but again, I, I felt like Greer Carson did a good job and it was probably mostly just the dialogue that she was given. And also Laurence Olivier, uh, um, 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 uh, there was a certain amount of apathy towards this character, but we'll get into that eventually. <laughs> so let's talk about Mr. Bingley. Let's go ahead and just discuss him. He was portrayed by Bruce Lester, who, like all of these actors, was in quite a few things in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Again, none of which I have seen. Uh, But he was also, fun fact, in the movie Tarzan's Peril, just like his dear Jane. Uh, But he played the game warden, so not as pivotal of a role. Man, talk about someone who was barely in this film. Yeah. We really did not see much of him at all. Um, I think the most that we saw of him was in that Marathon yeah. Ball scene. The scene that lasted like mm-hmm. 25 minutes. But yeah, we really did not see much of Bingley. I felt like it was a decent portrayal, but it wasn't memorable at all. I think one scene that I thought was like cute-ish was the scene where I, I mentioned it earlier Jane is sick and Bingley's behind this little partition. I didn't love the way that they were portraying Jane just because I felt like it wasn't book accurate, but Bingley was just so cute. His head just pops out from behind the partition and 
you know, now that I think about it, it was a pretty sexist scene. Yeah. <laughs> because. Yeah. yeah. No, it definitely yeah. was. He was like translating everything. The doctor was saying. The doctor yeah. was saying. Because her. she doesn't understand what anything the doctor's saying means. So he translates all of the technical doctor medical terms. Um, but the way he did it, it was really sweet. But looking back, it's pretty. Yeah, it's definitely sexist. Uh Especially now that we're analyzing that. Yeah, definitely sexist. But that scene for me, I was getting uh, 2005 Bingley puppy vibes, I guess. You know, just with like his like happy grin. Um, I liked him again, like Jane. I feel like we didn't see a whole lot of him during this film. Um, Even less than Jane. (laughs) Definitely did have the sweetie boy vibes though. Yeah, so I mean... If I can say anything in props to his character, it was consistent. Well. <laughs> you want to talk about someone who's not consistent. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Inconstancy. Let's talk about Darcy. Darcy was played by Laurence Olivier. And I am sure that you have heard of Laurence Olivier. He's just just so famous. Arguably the most famous person in this entire cast, I would I would say. Um, Mm -hmm. he's played just pretty much all of Shakespeare's leading men, Hamlet, Richard III, King Henry V. Um, he did his tours. He's done his tours. He played the narrator and Lord Montague in a version of Romeo and Juliet. He, he's just done it all. He played Nicodemus in a movie about Jesus. So what do you guys think about Laurence Olivier's Mr. Darcy? All right. You want to talk about possibly the worst part of this film was this dang character. And let me explain. He was so inconsistent. I don't know if this was direction from the director, if this was in the script, if this was his apathy towards the character itself, I don't know. But this man, like Darcy went from being aloof to charmed and in love with Lizzie to then put off to then flirting and then we're pushing away to then we're rebuffing but then it was he was all over the place and I kind of wanted to die watching it it was awful I don't think I necessarily hated Mr. Darcy as much as you did I didn't love him I didn't think it was a great portrayal but I felt like just so much of where his character growth happens was missing. You know, we didn't get those scenes where Lizzie goes to Pemberley for the first time and you get to see kind of a a gradual change of character for Darcy. And that I'm sure was super hard for Laurence Olivier. As I mentioned, uh, Laurence Olivier was not thrilled with the changes they made to the Pride and Prejudice script. And so I'm sure that also had a little something to do with his performance also, I read that as this movie was being filmed, he was prepping for a stage production of Romeo and Juliet, and that was completely occupying his <laughs> mind. Um, and I do feel like you can tell that a little bit, but I feel like he's just such a good actor that even his half-hearted uh, 50% effort is is good in, in my mind. I felt like it was pretty good. Not necessarily completely book accurate, but the script isn't book accurate, so... I will say, if you want a suave, dashing man to play a leading role in a 1940s film, he does take the cake. Like, he, his acting is good. It's just the character that was portrayed in this film was not consistent, and it kind of drove me a little mental. 
Yeah, he was definitely dashing, and I would agree. I don't think it was a problem with his acting in the same way that I don't think it was a problem with Greer Garson's acting, um, that she was suddenly in love with Mr. Darcy. I think that that is just a script flaw. Um, yeah, the just constant ping-ponging and rollercoastery nature of Darcy's emotions was giving me whiplash. It was, it wasn't fun. But we've got we've got one man, one man left, a man who is barely worth discussing. Does he even? Does he deserve our thoughts, ladies? Was he such a scoundrel in this film? What did you think? <sighs> Obviously, Beth is alluding to the notorious Mister Wickham, who is played in this film by Edward Ashley, um, and again, he was in quite a few films from the 40s and the 50s including the movie the oh my gosh oh, revelation he guest starred on the show the beverly hillbillies <laughs> as man on yacht <laughs> so of course that wow. was the biggest thing uh, that he ever did he also guest starred on the show bonanza if you guys have grandfathers who love uh ranger type shows I'm sure you've heard of that. Um, and he's been in he's been in quite a few things. So how did you guys feel about Edward Ashley's Mr. Wickham? He felt like a weasel, if that makes sense. Like uh, like a conniving, like almost like really old school James Bond villain type weasel. It was very weird to me. Like it made sense in the time period that they're placing this film and just the way that the acting was going kind of made sense but also kind of threw me through a loop because he wasn't as camouflaging suave with everyone it was very odd I think one reason for what you're talking about um yeah he's definitely a weasel but he's maybe not as as evil as he's supposed to be and I think part of that was because the film really didn't give him very much time like Darcy's explanation of what he did to his sister was incredibly minimal in my head and then the entire situation with Wickham and Lydia running away is so quickly introduced and then so quickly resolved that it doesn't even really get to set in what he's doing and how how bad it is you know like he clearly is money hungry and uh, Darcy obviously pays him off to marry Lydia throughout the film or as shown in the film but I, I feel like you don't really get a taste for just how manipulative and conniving he is but and again that's not the fault of the actor that's the fault of the script the actor I think Edward Ashley does a great job portraying that he's He's sleazy, like you're yeah. talking about. He's Weasley. Uh, the character does make a lot of jokes at Lydia's yes. expense. Though. Yes. <laughs> that really added to the distrustful nature. But like you're seeing that reveal about uh, what Darcy had done to him and then the subsequent reveal that Darcy hadn't actually done anything to him. They didn't really mean anything because you weren't emotionally attached to the character at all. And I think that's because of when he was introduced and then how much time we got with him. I do think it's worth noting though, that 
you know, we talked about that, how weird it was that scene where they got the letter saying that they would be married and then they immediately showed up at the house. They came with like six yeah. men in livery and with a carriage and they immediately walk in talking about how rich they are now. It was very strange. I was like, okay, Darcy paid you off. Like, not that much. But also you shouldn't <laughs> be rich. Definitely not worthy of trumpets playing as you <laughs> enter the home. When that happened, I was like, is Lydia just really stupid? Or did Darcy spend way more money than he did in the books? I don't know, man. It was so strange. Before I wrap this up and uh, lead us on into make it or break it, I think there's one character that especially for this film deserves a little shout out uh, because if you want to talk about a book accurate portrayal, Mr. Collins was pretty on point. Oh yes, he's just as delightfully annoying as always. I mean, running away, Lizzie, was classic. That was classic. (laughs) He chased her through the That was awesome. Miss Elizabeth Bennet. Miss Elizabeth Bennet. Anyway, so I guess that excludes him from make it, so adjust yourselves as needed. But, uh, ladies, what were your make it or break it's? Okay, well, I have a break it, and it hasn't actually been mentioned yet, surprisingly. I have have two. Uh, One was the way that Mrs. Bennet pronounces the name Darcy and Bingley. Every single freaking time she says Darcy and Bingley, and it's so annoying. I she does that with any name that ends in could, Y. She does it with Pimberley I too. I could not handle it the way she said Darcy. Like what? It made me so upset, and I was dying. And then I already mentioned this, but it really bothered me that they turned Catherine de Berg into a hero because, as Lori mentioned, this just becomes a rom-com instead of political and social satire. And changing Catherine de Berg into a hero just completely, I feel like, undermines part of the entire message of this, this story of class snobbery and prejudice and pride. And I just did not like it. But <laughs> that's just one girl's opinion. And my make it, this might be a little controversial uh, based on the opinions that have been shared thus far, but I actually really did like Laurence Olivier. I thought that there were very specific scenes that he did quite a good job with acting, with his with his uh, portrayal, especially the proposal scene. I, I just felt like Laurence Olivier did a, a great job. No comment. <laughs> You don't have any make it no, to I was saying no comment to Julius. I just wanted to say that's a, that's a soft make it because <laughs> as I already mentioned, you could tell his his heart wasn't in it. Well, my large break it that we've already discussed is the total disregard for time oh, in this film. Yeah. But a smaller one is that I just get very annoyed. And it, it's not everything, but it just felt so wrong here. They directly reference the title. Yes. And <laughs> this is when they are at the Netherfield ball slash picnic slash garden party. And <laughs> they're deciding that they should make it up that they should make up. And Darcy's like, let's just call it quits and start fresh. And Elizabeth says, 
At this moment, it's difficult to believe that you're so proud. And Darcy says, at this moment, it's difficult to believe that you're so prejudiced. Like, why? Just <laughs> palm to just forehead. Just pull my hair out. I just... I did not appreciate that scene. I just cannot even, speaking of the timeline, like, cannot put into words the amount of disappointment I felt at their skipping Lizzie's visit to Pemberley. Like, how can you do that? I don't know. I mean, how could they make him any more rich than they've portrayed everyone else in this film? I don't think they could do it justice. Make him king of England at that point. That's fair. And then I did have just a couple of... There is some Darcy and Elizabeth moments that were cute at that same garden party. I did like how we see Collins chasing after Elizabeth, running through the whole place. Elizabeth is hiding in the bushes, and Darcy is happens to be nearby. Collins comes up and he's like, "Have you seen Miss Elizabeth Bennet anywhere?" And you can see Elizabeth like shaking her head and asking Darcy not to say anything. I thought that part, that part Everyone's was pretty cute. Everyone's been there. <laughs> Yeah, I really liked that. And then I also liked the costumes. You know, even though we couldn't see them in their full color glory, there were some that were really fun and over the top. But it was completely inaccurate. Like, the costuming made absolutely no sense. But it was pretty. I liked looking at them. Well, okay, I have a serious one and then a funny one. For both. Okay. So uh, my serious one, I'm with you, Beth. The complete obliteration of the timeline of this book is just too absurd to not address. It was pretty bad. It is pretty bad. And I don't know how you'd do that. Uh, my less serious uh, break it is the bonnets in this film are a bit ridiculous. They're aggressive. <laughs> like, like, think uh, Alice in Wonderland, um, like, daffodils, extreme, like, it's, Google a picture of these bonnets, people. It's wild. I just, I could not get over it. Like, I understand the opulence and, like, the Victorian era costuming. Like, don't get me wrong. I love a poofy dress. I love to spin as much as the next girl in a giant poofy dress. But the bonnet was just driving it just on a different level. They look ridiculous. Uh, my make it was, one, I really liked the inclusion of the archery scene. That's kind of my, like, big kind of, that was like, a. if I, we couldn't have the dance scene at that ball, I appreciated that they, like, moved it into, like, a flirty archery contest where like Darcy's like kind of shown up by Lizzie kind of enjoyed that um my funny little make it was turtle soup which I loved Mrs. Bennett saying that no Jane will probably not have turtle soup when she goes to the Bingley's because you don't have turtle soup at a rich person's house until you're engaged and that was just beautiful to me. I'm now just looking at pictures of bonnets. Just uh, <laughs> FYI. Just just period movie podcaster things in your search history bonnets. <laughs> so, Lori, who would you date from this adaptation? I think I'm going to shock everyone. 
not really. But uh, I'm going to deviate from probably what's going to be my decision for the rest of these adaptations for the most part. And I'm not going to choose Darcy. Uh, I think I'm going to date Bing Lee. Whoa, I support this. I fully support this. I just can't get over the fact that his character changed so many times. And it went back and forth and it didn't just progressively get better. If we were in the 1940s right now, you would I know, be shunned. I know. <laughs> Sorry. Don't tell your grandparents, but I do not choose the uh, popular boy of the 40s. Well, Lori, thank you for telling us that tidbit. And I'll be really interested to see if you do differ from Mr. Darcy again dun, dun, dun. in this pod. Um, <laughs> but why don't you go ahead and tell us, how was your drink this evening? I'm not going to lie. It was pretty bad. And it was very unfortunate. Um, It's steeped for 15 minutes. I was good. I took out the tea bag. I'm glad I didn't throw it away. But I took it out. I took a couple sips. It tasted like warm water. There was no flavoring. But you steeped it for 15 minutes. I know. And Did you use boiling water? Yes, I did. So strange. And no, I didn't do it in the microwave. I did it on the stovetop. I'm sorry, England. Um, and I did that, and then I took a couple sips, realized it just didn't taste great, so I added, you know, a spoonful of sugar, put the tea bag back in, let it sit for, like, another five, ten minutes, took it back out. It did not improve the flavor at all. When I tell you this tasted like hot water with, like, a hint of tea, that's what it is. It's like when a coffee snob... Like, hates on tea because it's hot leaf water. Yeah, it was not good. I would not recommend. Well, coffee's just hot bean water. That's true. I'm all for the equality of tea and coffee. You are the definition of a tea and coffee girl. (laughs) Thank you. I don't know what that means, but I'm (laughs) thanking you. Well, my drink was pretty good. It really depends on what mood I'm in, though, because at some points it can taste like a nice light refreshing beverage but then sometimes the ginger and lemon flavor plays out in a more medicinal way and i feel like i'm drinking a weird tea (laughs) or like something that should make me feel better and that's not great but tonight it was nice that's good i enjoyed it it was real good um i've actually had a lot of these They, they come in a six pack and i've had it for a while so i think i only have one can left but in order for me to drink that much of one kind of a beverage it's got to be like fairly decent especially for you would i buy this yeah i mean would i buy this flavor again probably not valid (laughs) but i will buy the brand again i think i'm going to go back to my grapefruit flavor and you want to know why i'm going back to my grapefruit? why Why? going back because it reminds me of a below (laughs) month Bringing it full circle, folks. So, Julia, my Paloma twin, how was your drink? Two Paloma gals. Um, My Pinot. Two Palomas (laughs) in a pod. (laughs) Two Palomas on a pod. (laughs) On a pod. Oh, my gosh. That stays in. (laughs) Um, My Pinot Noir was good. It's not – I think red wine sometimes for me can have kind of like a – like a, a bitter taste to them almost if that makes sense and this didn't to me 
Um, I think I've said this before on this podcast, but many red wines taste very similar. And this one was just good. So shout out to our guest who brought these over the other day, Mary Pat and Joseph. Thank you for the red wine. I enjoyed it. So. Well, speaking of enjoyment. <laughs> oh, I really enjoyed talking about the 1940 Pride and Prejudice with you guys today. It was super fun to dive into our very first Pride and Prejudice adaptation. What a weird <laughs> kickoff. I cannot wait for what's ahead. We got a journey. Hopefully uh, it's a little bit more predictable. I but hope, who knows? I hope so. Who knows? All right. So I hope you also enjoyed listening to the podcast today. If you did, please head on over to Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and out-of-this-world review. Um, You can also follow us on Instagram, see all of our latest shenanigans, hear more about what, what adaptation we're doing next. We are at Sips and Sensibility Pod. And you can like our Facebook page. We are Sips and Sensibility. Next week, we're watching something that Julia has never seen. And I don't know how. (laughs) I'm so excited. I can't even begin to put it into words. We are going to watch. Hold your socks, people. I'm about to blow them off. We are going to watch the 1995 BBC adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. The miniseries, folks, the one, the only, the greatly contested for first place with the 2005 Pride and Prejudice, the 1995. If you don't already own this on a multi-DVD set, uh, you can watch this on Amazon with your BritBox subscription or trial, or on BritBox with a BritBox subscription or trial, or on YouTube. You can rent it. Um, also now, this is so exciting, I watched this for the first time, like, five years ago, I think now, uh, they have restored it in 4K, folks, so it looks better than ever, uh, so put that on your big screen TVs, blow it up on your laptop, enjoy it, and until we come back together to discuss this beautiful miniseries, just keep on sipping, y'all. <laughs>